everyone and welcome back to Newswire. I'm Kira O'Loughlin and I'm joined today by Eva Horan. On today's show, Clara Cashlin speaks to students and SDI check. Judy Williams reports from Daffodil Day 2019. Irish teenage girls are the third worst binge drinkers globally. Process of sperm donation work. And finally, we'll be having a panel discussion on the rising number of Good afternoon, it's five o'clock. Icelandic airline Wow Air has ceased operation, cancelling all flights and disrupting thousands of passengers' travel plans. In a statement this morning, the budget airline advised passengers to check available flights with all other airlines. Some airlines may offer flights at a reduced rate, so-called rescue fares in light of the circumstances, Wow Air said. The 10.45am flight from Dublin Airport to Keflavik in Iceland was cancelled. The 9.30am inbound flight from Iceland was also cancelled as a result of the collapse. The House of Commons looks to set to debate Theresa May's Brexit deal again tomorrow. However, it is not yet clear if a vote on the withdrawal agreement will take place. Negotiations are ongoing behind the scenes in a bid to get May's deal over the line on the third attempt at doing so. May's making last-ditch attempts to get MPs to back her Brexit deal, having offered her resignation in return for support. Health Minister Simon Harris has said he is extremely concerned about the presentations to sexual assault treatment units during special events such as Freshers' Week in universities. The minister today announced additional investment in SATU services will increase by €500,000 this year after a report published today found the services are under pressure. Currently, there are six units and these are located in Cork, Dublin, Galway, Mullingar, Letterkenny and Waterford. RTE News has announced that Sean Whelan is its news London correspondent. Whelan takes over the role after almost nine years as economics correspondent and 28 years with RTE. The London position is currently held by Fiona Mitchell, who took over the role in November 2014 after RTE reversed a previous decision to close its London office. And finally, Justin Bieber got a fright on Tuesday afternoon when a woman broke into his California hotel room. The intruder roamed into Bieber's hotel room and he reportedly told her to beat it. TMZ reports the woman appeared to be drunk. That's all the news for now. Remember, you can keep up to date with us on Facebook and Twitter at DCUMPS News. This is Clara Castman reporting for Newswire. There were 5,215 to 24-year-olds diagnosed with chlamydia, gonorrhea or herpes in 2017. STIs in young people is on the rise with an 11% increase from 4,677 cases in 2016 to 5,200 in 2017, according to the latest STI surveillance report by the Health Protection Surveillance Centre. The Union of Students in Ireland joined with the Health Service Executive in February to launch a sexual health awareness and guidance campaign known as the Shag Campaign in College Campuses. Jesse Byrne, head of the Student Health Centre in DCU, said that there has been several awareness campaigns in DCU since September. Hopefully the message got through regarding the importance of using condoms at all times. We provide condoms and students can help themselves when supplies are available in the health centre. Of the 5,200 people aged 15 to 24 diagnosed with an STI in 2017, 59% were female and 41% were male. Chlamydia in young people made up 50% of all cases reported, and of these, 62% were female and 38% were male. I spoke to Ashling Fagan, the Vice President for Welfare and Equality in DCU, to see what her thoughts were. Here's what she had to say. 
The SU has funded free STI checks in the health centres on campus in Glasnevin and St. Pat's. So the tests for chlamydia and gonorrhea are free. So if anyone wants to pop into the health centre, um, just have a chat with the nurse, they'll organise an appointment and they'll get you back. No need for anyone to be embarrassed. I know that's been a kind of an issue over the last while, but the nurses in the health centre here are more than familiar with, with everything there. So there's no shame in it whatsoever. We really want to create a positive culture around getting tested. The two that are free are gonorrhea and chlamydia. The rest of them, there'll be other charges but that was the most that we could fund ourselves the uptake has been massive especially when we kind of started to push it more during the likes of kiss week so our keep it safe and sexy was our sexual health week and we put a big push on the fact that the sti tests were free because not many people knew about them and the health center said there was a massive massive push and i know a lot of the times if anyone goes for like a general checkup the nurses will ask them if they want to avail of the free sti checks while they're there so there is a lot of people availing of them i would say the likes of chlamydia would be one of the most common at the end of the year the health centre usually give us stats on what would have been the most common throughout the year so we'll be getting that like soon enough I know there's been a big push from a lot of SUs around the country and from USI themselves about STI checks and getting tested and everything like that so I think it's become a lot more talked about this year I think there always has been issues around STIs and people practicing safe sex and people not having enough education around them like knowing the symptoms knowing the signs knowing how to avoid them and knowing what to do when they think that they have contracted one so definitely more education around STIs and making it less to be more talked about. They'll know from when they get tested what the story is and most of the time it'll be antibiotics and they'll be able to know straight away and then they can head straight to the pharmacy on campus and then get themselves treated. If people are like in any way worried or anything like that that I'm, I'm always here welfare officer to chat about anything like that I've had a lot of people coming in kind of worried about it and thinking they might have contracted one and not really knowing what to do afterwards like who they need to tell or anything or like what they should do so I'm always here if anyone is ever concerned about anything like that with plenty of information. Ireland may be well known for its drink culture, but a new study published in the Lancet Medical Journal found that Ireland ranks third in Europe for the number of adolescent girls who binge drink, right behind Denmark and Finland. Researchers found that the rate of adolescent binge drinking in Irish teenage girls was 61% compared to 58% of teen boys. Globally, an estimated 27 million girls participated in binge drinking in 2016. To some, these statistics come as no surprise. I spoke to a nurse working in the emergency department of her local hospital who said teenage binge drinkers are only getting younger. Go, I'm in the emergency department quite a long time. Years ago, there would have been, we would all have been very, very concerned when the leave cert results came out and we'd be concerned about young people coming in following the leave insert. And then it came to a stage where they weren't coming in after the leave insert because they actually were relatively seasoned drinkers and um, they didn't have that emergency night where they couldn't hold their alcohol. And then it kind of went down to being worried about after the junior cert. And even we're finding lately that the young people from after the junior cert aren't arriving in the emergency department because likewise... Not, they're not arriving any higher levels. You might get the odd one coming in, but that they're they're holding their drink because they they know what levels they have and they're used to drinking it, which is a terrible thing to say. I think, in general, Ireland accepts alcohol as being part of the culture. Most families have people that drink. Most families would probably know people that have what they would consider drink problems. They either drink too much or the, everybody knows of somebody who, and in return it is probably more acceptable than it would be other, you know, for other people. And I think that, um, no, we're not, we don't realise the seriousness 
young people aren't bodies aren't developed large amounts of alcohol it's going to affect their livers and things in the long term and if they're if it's all acceptable to drink large amount of alcohol at a very young level it can only on the long term have problems for them but do we as a public know enough about binge drinking according to alcohol action ireland binge drinking is three pints or six units of pub measured spirits in one short session I checked in with local students to test their knowledge of binge drinking culture and many were surprised at the result. What would you consider to be binge drinking? I would say more than maybe five or six drinks in the night. Um, about ten or more. Um, maybe like eight drinks. Um, probably seven drinks, maybe more. Probably, probably a decent amount more. And what if I told you binge drinking is actually three or more pints of alcohol, beer, or six or more pub measures of spirits in one session? Well, thinking about it, that kind of makes sense, but most people tend to drink an average of 10 now, so maybe that's why it would seem like that now. That's actually not that much at all. I would have expected it to be a lot higher. I, well, I myself would probably drink a lot more than that on a night out, so I think most people would. It just seems really low. That seems quite low, really. Like, in a night out, you'd think... Over a couple of hours, you do much more than that, especially students. I, I think that would be much higher. Yeah, I'm fairly surprised at that figure, to be honest. I would have thought it'd be over three because, you know, the average person, when they go out, they would have more than three pints. Irish teenage girls are actually the third highest binge drinkers in Europe. Does that come as any shock to you? Um, it would be fairly surprising, actually, yes, because I would have thought other countries like maybe Italy and France, renowned for their wine, and maybe places like Russia, renowned for their vodka, would have a higher binge drinking. But I guess we do have a bigger issue under there. Not really. I think there is a bit of a drinking culture in, in both the country and just students. So I, I could imagine going up to that, I could imagine why that would be quite high. Well, I myself wouldn't drink very often, but from what I've seen, it would, yeah, it makes sense from what I see whenever I go out. So yeah, that, that seems fair enough. Definitely doesn't shock me. Irish people definitely like to drink. When people go out, they do go. When people go out, they do go out to get fucked. So binge drinking in Irish girls, yeah, that sounds about right. No, no, the figure, that figure doesn't particularly surprise me. Mary Ryan, DCU. Dublin city centre was awash with bright yellow for the Irish Cancer Society's Daffodil Day last Friday. Daffodil Day takes place every March and volunteers across Ireland raise vital funds to help the fight against cancer. They sell flowers and daffodil pins or host coffee mornings and other fundraising events in their local communities. On Dublin's O'Connell Street, James Gilleran, dressed in a costume covered head to toe in daffodils, is marking 25 years of volunteering on Daffodil Day. Hello, my name is James Gilleran. I'm known as the Daft Man, or the Daffodil Man. Hello sir, how are you? Can you tell me what it means to you to, to do this role? It gives me great satisfaction for a start, and it helps me in a lot of ways. My father died of cancer, and my aunt died of cancer, and I had sister-in-laws dying of cancer, and friends. And then, in the other end, I've had friends that are on remission and that have been cured. My own brother had cancer and he's in remission now at the moment. So it's things like that. And if I can do a little bit here to help research, to help the Cancer Society get more help out to more people, that's why I do it. And you've been here since seven this morning. How did you get here? I came in on my bicycle dressed as the Daffodil Man and I'm going home on my bicycle dressed as the Daffodil Man. What time do you finish up here at tonight? And where would you go then? I'd finish here now 
at half five a quarter to six. Get on my bike and I'll cycle back up home, well, towards home, should I say, and I'll go to my local pub. I'll have something to eat and I'll go in and have a couple of pints. The Golfing Society are having the night there tonight, so I'll make a few more, Bob, with the suit on. What is it you enjoy most about doing this? Meeting people. Meeting people from all over the world. As I said another year here, I wrote down, I used to write down where the people were from. And I literally went all over the world without leaving O'Connor Street. And it's not what I collect here on the stall every year. But up the road at the GPO or the other side of the thing, people say, oh, we never gave to the Daffodil Man. And they give. So it's not what I collect here myself, but it's the awareness I bring. And that's the best part of it. Approximately 40,000 people are diagnosed with cancer each year in Ireland. Money raised during the Daffodil Day campaign is used to support those affected by cancer. The Irish Cancer Society has invested €25 million in research since 2010. This has resulted in more people surviving cancer than ever before. I spoke to people in Dublin city centre to find out why they support this charity. I do it because my brother-in-law died from a brain cancerous brain tumour. Uh, my father-in-law had prostate cancer. My mother-in-law had ovarian and lung cancer. She survived. So, you know, the more money they get, the more research can be done and all of that sort of stuff. So and it's, it is a good cause. And in spite of all the stuff that's gone on with charities over the last five or ten years, the volunteers do a good job and that's what's important to me. So I do whatever I can. Well, I've had several family members that um, required treatment and specifically my sister-in-law this year. Um, and she said the support that she got from all of the support services from cancer is just a fantastic, fantastic uh, charity. I always come in, I make it my business to come in here from work straight away and support it because cancer runs in my family. My mother had it and was caught in time. My sister had it and was caught in time. Unfortunately, my father had it in 1972. He died in 1973. His mother had it in 1952 and died in 1953. It's great to know that the Irish Cancer Society is there for help. I think everybody in Ireland has been touched by cancer in one way or another, and it's a very good charity. And I feel that the money that goes to the Irish Cancer Society actually goes to the Irish Cancer Society. So that's why. It's clear that Daffodil Day holds a special place in the hearts of people in Ireland, as cancer has touched so many lives. Judy Williams, O'Connell Street, Dublin. We're going to take a quick ad break now, but make sure to stay tuned as we will be discussing if our infertility as a nation has risen. And I'll be speaking to a woman about her infertility journey and using a sperm donor. Right, so would you mind just talking to us through your fertility journey? Okay, so... I always had really um, weird periods, like they might last for 10 days um, I might get two in one month maybe, like for years and years and years and I'd always go back to the doctor and she. I remember when she sent me for an ultrasound to see if there was like, you know, polyps or whatever, came back all clear. I went for smears and all the rest and they all came back clear and that, but I always knew it was something just not normal like nobody gets yeah. 10 day periods nobody gets two periods in one month so not last year the year before I was like I'll go and get a fertility test 
So I went to Sims Clinic and they do this thing called an AMH test and it's basically a blood test and they check your AMH which is a hormone in your blood and so they rang me back, the nurse rang me back about two weeks later and she said your results are in um, but before I go any further I just want to know is there a history of early menopause in your family and I said no I didn't think there was. This came back and your AMH levels are 7 and somebody of your age they should be 15 so I was 29 at the time they should be 15 which means your fertility is half of what it should be and I was like okay she's got the wrong person here like I really do wasn't expecting her to say that I was like right so what does that mean so she said basically you're going to menopause around the age of 40 rather than say 50 the average age is so I thought oh my god and she said, um, are you thinking of trying for a baby? And I was like, well, I wasn't really at the time. Uh, but I was like, um, well, you know, I was just thinking. And she goes, because your fertility will probably be peak now in the next two years. But after two years, then it'll just start to decline. And I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm only 29 now. And like, what's that? So 31, it's just going to be really, really difficult to have a baby. Like, that's you know, I might as well just do it now, like, or else you never know, like, looking back on, oh, should I have done it, you know, so that was the start of it then. And would you, like, were you happy to find out, or? Yeah, yeah, definitely, because, so basically, my body was producing more eggs, per month than it should have, it was losing, okay, you know, the way your body, Pre- releases, um, a releases one egg a month or whatever like it was producing more per month than what it should have so that's why I was getting a longer period or two periods a month say and um, yeah so at least then I knew brilliant yeah. so we know obviously you're sitting here with your <laughs> gorgeous little boy <laughs> so you decided to um, have a baby yeah we did Um. So what was the first step then, I suppose, when you made that decision? And was that a very hard decision to make? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, once she hung up the phone, I just thought, well, it's now or never, you know. I so just, you kind of decided nearly instantly? Yeah. Um, I knew Sarah wanted to have a baby too. So um, the next step then was she gave me some advice on the vitamins to take. So there was vitamin D, um, COQ10, you know, folic acid, um, lots of different vitamins. The COQ10 was the really important one because that's for cell division. Um, so the minute I started taking the COQ10, I really noticed a difference in my periods then, which is really interesting. So started taking the vitamins then for about three or four months. And we made an appointment then for the January to visit the doctor in Sims. So that was the ball rolling then. And what happened then after then? Did you, sorry, did you have IUI or IVF? IUI, yeah. IUI. So when we visited the doctor, he said, look, seven is still a really good number for your AMH. You know, people come in level three or four and he would say to them, okay, this is going to be really difficult. But he said, you're 29 
Okay, so your AMH is 7 and should be 15, but, you know, you still have a really good chance. Um, what was the question? <laughs> I'm just um, Just the process. So you started with yeah. IUI, wasn't so it? Said, yeah, so he said, look, definitely we'll do IUI. We don't need to do IVF unless, you know, we do maybe three to six rounds of IUI and it is still failed. But um, IUI is a lot cheaper than IVF, so... We just decided to go with that. I'm sorry, it was your third round you were successful. No, the it? first round. Oh, the first yeah. round. <laughs> yeah, apparently it's quite rare in the first round too. Um, so yeah, we were really lucky. And what was the process then of getting a sperm donor for that? So for the sperm donor, there's this website called Creos, C-R-Y-O-S, at Denmark, I think. And you go on and basically there's these drop down boxes you pick um it's kind of it's weird when you say it you know you're random it's not a random selection you're like choosing what kind of baby you like you can see the pictures um of the of the the guy of him as a baby um a full profile like of mental assessments physical assessments like um, health checks and all that family background but you don't know their name they just have okay. they have a fake name but you can still see them as a baby it's kind of weird but I loved it um so you know you pick I want say a Caucasian baby I'd like them to have either blonde or you like design it, design yeah, your own baby. <laughs> yeah it's really weird say so I hated it but I loved it like and I, why was, why wasn't she into it just she just thought like why she was like why aren't why are we doing like by looking at their picture like why can't we look at and I was like well you know we chose a baby with red hair because the baby's obviously going to look like me because I'm carrying it but it's not going to look like her but she has red hair so let's just give oh, it a little nice. bit of both so it turned out that he the, the one that we chose he was um three quarter three quarters Irish and a quarter German and he had red hair so we thought that was the selling point was it yeah but I knew I knew the minute I saw this profile I was like this is my baby I looked at the picture of it of the person as a child and I went that's my baby my baby's gonna look like that it's really really weird and did he end up looking like that no he didn't (laughs) (laughs) but anyway yeah so then what you do then is you so I thought, yeah, this is this is the one, this is the person that I want to have their sperm. So you go to the clinic and you say, right, we've chosen this person. You give them the name, the fake name, say. Um, let's just say his name is John on his profile. I want John. And then the guy in the clinic has to check that John has not given sperm in Ireland before. So the sperm's coming from okay. a sperm bank in Denmark. Um, and why can't it's just for like reproduction like say so say John has already donated to four families in Ireland and we would have been the fifth family so how many you get three vials of sperm for one go say so we were going to be buying three say those four families had three vials each so that's three six nine twelve maximum 12 babies that he could have okay you yeah. know and then we would have been 15 babies so that's 15 babies for one man 
in Ireland. Do you okay, get me? Yeah. So what's the chances of them meeting? Is yeah. that the problem? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, it turned out that he hadn't donated to Ireland at all. Okay. And you can only, sorry, you can only donate to three families. In, in your life? In No, in one country. In one country, okay. Yeah. So he hadn't donated to Ireland at all yet. So we were like, that's great. So he was available for us, say. Um, so that was it. Then we just went with him. And you went ahead with that and then you were yeah. lucky on the first go? Yeah, that was it. Um, so, yeah, would would you go through this process again for another baby? Was it hard? Like, did you have to do any injections or...? Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, I forgot about that. So, it's nowhere near as rigorous as IVF. Did you watch the programme? Uh, Fertility shock? Yeah, no, um... The Baby Makers on TV3. No, no, I didn't see it. I loved it. I watched it twice. It was so, so good. Um, And it was actually the Sims Clinic too that they were working from. But um, yeah, so you get... Okay, so how did we start? They send you a prescription for all your injections that you have to get. They send it to the pharmacy um, you go pick them up from the pharmacy. The pharmacist tells you exactly how to inject them. So you have to do. I'm trying to think now. On the first day of your period, you take your first injection. You do it one per day up until day seven, I think. I can't even remember now. But anyway, <laughs> you do. There's a lot is of. Is it a bit of a blur? Yeah, it is a bit of a blur thinking back, but it was actually this time last year. What date is today? It is the 18th. 18th, yeah. Oh, yeah, the day after Paddy's Day, yeah. Yeah, 18th. it was this time last year that we were going through so, the So, sorry, how, so how long was it from, you know, the initial, saying, not, we won't say the consultation, but when you went into the doctor and you're like, right, we're starting now. Yeah, so we went in the January and we said, okay, we want to do this. And he said, okay, well, first of all, we have to check your ovaries to make sure that they're clear so we did that on that day and he said right um once the results are back that your ovaries are all clear and your tubes are all clear we can start next month and I thought I'm going to London next month (laughs) (laughs) it was going to interfere with your social plans (laughs) I thought I'm going to London next month I don't think I'm ready just yet I said can we wait till March and he said, yeah, of course, you can do whenever you want. So he said, I'll fax the thing over and you start taking it whenever, you start taking the injections whenever you want. So he faxed it over and we got them, we put them in the fridge and my period came in February and we decided not to do it in the February. Um, because it was like the day we were, the day before we were going to London or something like that anyway. It wouldn't mean that we were trying to bring bloody needles on the airplane. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> it just wasn't working out. So we said, right, we're going to do this in March. So, yeah, it was really, really quick. We Our first consultation was in the January, and it was just two months later then. And would you do the process again for another baby? Um, Yeah, the process is great. Labor is not great. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, yeah, definitely would go through the IUI process again. And would you, do you have any advice that you would give to, say, women in their 20s, say, of a similar age to yourself, 
who don't want kids right now but know that in the future they do, would you advise them to go and, and get checked? I would. I really would. Like, I would never have known. I don't know what made me think I'm going to go get the fertility test because it's not something that people think about. No. But I just knew. I knew that there was something not right with my periods. And... And had you ever been given, because I know it's a lot of people are talking about them at the moment, um, and endometriosis, I think that's how it's pronounced, Yeah, is never, it's like doctors kind of just brush brush it off and there's so many girls and women who, you know, are having these issues but they're just not, yeah. not being dealt with. I would definitely say just go and get a, a fertility test done, like... It costs 160 euro. I know that's quite expensive, but you know, for peace of mind, if somebody says to you, "Look, you don't have much time. You've got two years." Imagine you got to the age of say 35, and you were ready by then to have babies, and you were trying and trying and trying for years. You know, and, and able, you, yeah. like that's what I just kept thinking. What if I get to the age of say 32, which is still really young, like to have a baby and it just doesn't work because it's not as easy for us because you know it's two females we're gonna have to get a sperm donor anyway Either it's not way, as yeah. if you can just keep trying every month it's quite expensive do you know yeah and then I was like I'll never forgive myself if I get to that age and I, it just doesn't work and I don't have kids and then it's like oh I should have just done it back then even though when I was 29, I was like, I'm not ready. I wanted to hike Machu Picchu for my 30th birthday, but I was pregnant <laughs> on my 30th birthday. Do you know, but I'm so glad because, you know, it's... It's something you couldn't Yeah, it's decreasing future. all the time. You're, everyone's fertility is decreased all the time. But mine was just doing it at a bit of a more quicker pace. So, yeah, I'd definitely say. And do you think, like, infertility is talked about enough, especially in Ireland? Not a bit. N- not at all, like... As well, like, the thing that affects your fertility, and a lot of people don't know, is alcohol abuse. Like, I'm not even saying, like... That's definitely worrying for our Yeah, it, it really is. Like, you know, when I was in college, we were drinking a lot. Like, I was drinking when I was 17, 18. You know, like, you don't think of it then. No. But it does affect your fertility. So... No, I don't think there's enough awareness for fertility at all. So Aoife, recent statistics have came out about the homelessness in Ireland. So um, do you want to just talk us through a little bit about what the new figures are? It doesn't include people living in squats, sofa surfing, women and children staying in domestic violence refuges are also not included in this and neither are people who are sleeping rough. It's the first time we've ever gone over that figure. And it was Peter McFerry said that, so these statistics have came out that 10,000 people are currently homeless, but Peter McFerry is saying that it is actually closer to 15,000. Yeah, well, I think Peter McFerry is probably on the money there because last year the Department, um, the Department of Housing chose to recategorize how they viewed homeless people to try and keep the number under 10,000 according to several politicians within Udall. Um, they think more than 
over that time, 1,600 people were removed from the official homeless figures. And even still, after doing that last year, in March, we have now gone over 10,000 anyways. And it shows that there is what seems to be a properly terrible crisis currently happening in our country at the moment. And has anything been outlined? Because... Um, we're currently looking at the Irish Times did an article only three hours ago about this, um, mostly on what Peter McFerry has said that you know it's closer to fifteen thousand, um, then then ten thousand. Um, however, like what, what, what are they going to do about it? I suppose. Well, I do believe that over time, several properties in town have been repurposed to make into social housing. But the issue with it is over the past couple of years, there's been a focus on not building council housing and working on private housing and working with HAP housing assistance payment, which hasn't really helped much. And I've worked on a couple of pieces on migrant homelessness and homelessness in young people. And one of the issues is HAP is very difficult to come by and some landlords don't accept HAP. And HAP is? Housing assistance payment. So oh, okay. And who who's entitled to that? People who were categorised as homeless, people who are sleeping rough and who are working within those sectors and involved, they can avail of housing assistance payments. As far as I read in any of the reports that I read, which would have been predominantly done by a loan, it was incredibly difficult to come by. And Migrants are incredibly adversely affected by homelessness in this country. I think like thir- they make up 30% of the homelessness population. Mad as well, like um, Peter McFerry, he was on um, Today with Sean O'Rourke there this morning and he said that two million was being spent every day in housing assistance. So through, I'm presuming that's through the HAP scheme that you were talking about. While 148 million had been spent on homeless services in 2018. So, I mean, they're completely upping the... Well, what would that be? Two. Oh no, no, two by three six five. Yeah, no, they've completely upped then what they're spending. So, I mean, it's mad to see that and then see the numbers continuing to rise. They're still kind of backtracking. It seems on what they're doing, and um, despite the fact that they did um, recategorize the sector in order to lower the numbers. Owen Murphy is still defending his decision to not include people who've moved in with their parents and are people who have couch surfing in the homelessness figures. Um, He's not including people who've No, they're who not. Moved. They were recategorised last year, like people who've moved back in with their parents, people... Pe- so that people who physically have a roof over their head, they're not counting. A, yeah, but also people in emergency accommodation are counted. Okay. So, But he's defended that decision by saying that they're not the same thi- situation while they're not the same situation they are still people without their own home and there's something like like housing is one of the main things in Maslow's hierarchy of human needs and that would be because there is an incredible dignity to not having a roof over your head oh yeah especially as an adult like can you imagine in five ten years time having to move back in with your parents while trying yeah. to create for yourself it's something that any less dignity as a person in that situation than you would as a person in emergency, emergency accommodation. accommodation. I mean, I suppose looking looking at it from one point of view, I suppose um, some people are living in hotels and that kind of thing. So obviously it's nicer to be living, you know, with your family in a home. But then at the same time, we can't really decide whether how good that situation, like for, for, 
for one person going back and living in their parents' homes, you know, they could have like a nice big house and they could get on with their family. And, you know, that situation may be very, very different to another person who maybe doesn't have a good relationship with their family. It's, you know, not a suitable home for them to live in. Um, I wonder, I suppose it would just take too long to look at individual circumstances, would it? Absolutely. Like the reports could be done and probably are being done by organizations such as alone but like they are currently like one in four new builds currently are social housing according to Owen Murphy and it's something quite interesting to look at because Owen Murphy and it's something quite interesting to look at because it was left alone for so long and even recently I visited Clock Jordan and Eco Village in Tipperary and that is all private housing and they haven't built on it in many years and they're looking to build social housing on it. But for something like an eco-village, it's incredibly precarious. And like, how would you just attract like your regular Dublin family to go there? I mean, wasn't there, um, they were trying to, I think they actually have carried it out with a few families trying to get... So if you're under the social housing scheme trying to get families out of Dublin to the likes of Wicklow and Kildare and places like that. Um, and so many people just, just won't do it. And I mean, you, you have to look like you can look at it from both sides. I mean, one, people do need to start moving out of Dublin. It just is not big enough. But then two, this is their home. And transport links have to be accommodating situations like that where people are working. Yeah. Isn't feasible to base yourself outside of the city with the things that you need to deal with in your day to day life. Also, like it was an issue that was seen when they started building the commuter towns outside of the city. Currently, you also have to think about the mental health and how that affects those people. Like a lot of the families who would have moved out to Ballymun when it was first built, there would have been like very few transport options for them to go into the city and visit their families. And a lot of people ended up fairly depressed and isolated because they were isolated from the communities that they were raised in and Mm. there's a big issue within the city today and particularly the inner city and with housing because as the city gets bigger and as we get more and more multinationals and companies in people from inner city towns and people from inner city places are being being pushed pushed out out of the place that they're from like currently down on sheriff street there has been this huge new student accommodation center built just beside the three arena and it's something like a thousand a month to live in at its cheapest and that is right down the road from Sheriff Street from the North Strand from people who are still living in flat complexes which have been predominantly smashed down elsewhere and those are the kind of people who could really benefit from homes like that but in their own area yes but instead they're just you know exploiting students spending an extortionate amount of money and are looking after people who actually live there. But I mean, I think the issue is just so much bigger than, um, you know, just looking at the housing. I mean, Ireland needs to be looked at a whole. Is absolutely what other country has, you know, one main city and that's it. I mean, we really like, obviously you have the likes of Cork and Galway and Limerick but it's just not on the same scale I mean we literally have Dublin most of the jobs are in Dublin and I think the biggest way in which this crisis can be reverted is to everything needs to be pushed out a little bit just Dublin just isn't isn't big enough like the building that's happening outside the towns and towns like are fairly difficult like 
I was in school in Colester and there was a girl who lived in Lusk who used to come up to our school because her grandmother lived in the area. But it took her an hour and a half to two hours every morning to get into school. Lusk is not that far away. It shouldn't have taken that long. No. The transport links. Sure, like Donabate is and so many other places um, in, in North County Dublin are 15 minute drives and about an hour and a half buses. The transport link in Dublin just needs to be sorted. Over an hour to get into DCU, and I'm a 15 minute drive away. Yeah, yeah, it's insane, it's absolutely insane. And you'd think that, um, being close to the city as you are, <laughs> it, it really shouldn't be. I mean, five minutes away from that is probably, I don't know what I'm saying. Um, but another kind of interesting point on this is I know Owen Murphy. Um, had been talking about Airbnb and new laws will come in this May um, that will stop um, certain houses allowing these short lets. So there is, I, I don't have the number on the top of my head, but there are like so many short lets um, that now won't be allowed. So Airbnbs will be open to long-term lets. However, it is uh, it's something like one thousand two hundred, one thousand five hundred. Like it's still, it's still not going to make that much of a dent. However, maybe when this comes in, other Airbnbs will start looking at these laws and maybe start opening up their homes to you know longer lasts and that kind of thing. It's so important that it does happen for people because even if you look at it just from a student perspective, the sheer amount of students I know who are from the country that either commutes I struggle with my two-hour commute that I do every day here and back and some people I know get the train in and spend three hours coming oh, in yeah. and com- coming out and not only that there's so many people who are genuinely sleeping rough as students like across our campuses that I know of because accommodation there are, like, is so there scarce. are many students who sleep in the likes of other people's couches um in their own car like it's not unheard of and if someone had have said to me maybe three or four years ago that they were sleeping in their car, I would have been shocked. And now, unfortunately, it's like we're desensitised to it, you know? Um, so anyway, we are just going to move on to our uh, final panel discussion of the day. Um, so it came out uh, yesterday um, that new cars might be fitted with speed limiting, te- limiting technology under EU rules. Um, sorry, that's not might. It is to be fitted. Um, however, I mean, there. I suppose there has been a lot of backlash against this. Um, so it is to come in in 2022. And it is to automatically make them the speed limit. Um, so, I mean, I th- depending what country you're in, we, by, we go by kilometres, it would be 120. So the cars physically cannot go above 120. What do you think of this? I mean, I suppose the big danger here would be sometimes speeding gets you out of um, dangerous situations. It does, and it's such an... In- Incredibly interesting read for anybody who's listening because yeah, sorry, we're looking at now. We're looking at an RTE.ie article, and one of the features that they're looking at is warning drivers of drowsiness and distraction, such as using a smartphone in the car. And how would how would that work? And this is the thing; it's not fully explained, and that's so bizarre because. Of course, I believe that the technology is there, but I'm. So I surprised. wonder, does it connect? Like, surely to um, monitor drowsiness, you would have to have a smartwatch 
or something along those lines. Yeah, but it's also like, how much is this going to cost people? Yeah, I mean, surely it will cost um, people who are buying cars. And I mean, people get people get around these things. People are just going to buy secondhand cars. So realistically, it's probably not going to come into full effect until like 2040. Because if you take that into account, that's, you know, 2022. And then, you know, you can have a car for up to like 15 years. So I just don't think it's very... I think it sounds, to be fair, like when I first heard about this um I was kind of like yeah that's a good idea I mean it might stop the many many road accidents that happen every year however I still don't think it's the way to go about it the issues with this is that technology can be overridden at any time and I think that's the danger of one of these things more specifically what exactly does he mean by that well like from what I would read from that is like Technology can be overridden any, at any time. Like somebody could hack into your car, ah, and yes, immediately yeah. that's you finished because you yeah. have no control over that. I think as much like you have to just instill proper safety monitor drivers more. Oh, for me, something I find incredibly interesting is that like you can take your driving test when you're twenty and then be driving when you're fifty as if it's fine. Yes, yes, and that, that's that's that much make more sense of an issue. I wouldn't even look at fifty. I mean, most people are. Um, still capable enough but I mean there's people driving in there I know I don't want to age discriminate but unfortunately that's just the way life is and when you're older you you don't have the same capabilities you did when you were younger that like god you should have to maybe redo it every 20 years I feel like you should probably have to redo it every five years because drivers just get very lazy in cars it's just it's something that you see in the road would that be feasible though like look at the moment how long it takes to get your le- your um test sorry imagine if every single person who drives in Ireland had to do it every 5 years they just need be, more they need more test centers it would be a lot like they need more test centers they need more people doing tests and they probably need more funding for it because it would be a lot safer i feel like the roads yeah. would be a lot safer i mean to be fair if you think about it like if they opened more test centers um and more they needed more um testers or instructors that's a lot of jobs there as well but even at that like just on stuff like that in general like other governments are so much more efficient than us in the realm of stuff like this um in japan there is a mandatory test that you have to take for your body when you're 30 everybody has to take this test like it's given to you that you avail of it through the government and for the first i don't know what the number is for the first however many people who apply, they have the opportunity to do it for free. It is an entire report card on how everything inside your body functions. Wow. Because it takes, they take heed in preventative care over other things. So you, it's, it gives you like a grading system on your heart and your lungs and your weight. That could definitely save so many people. Like Irish people are the worst in the world for just pushing things under the rug. If I don't get tested, I don't have it, you know? We are definitely the worst for that. But even at that, for a lot of people, it's the case of, like, n- lack, of lack of ability to afford it. Like, it costs 50, 55 euro to go to the doctors for people who don't yeah. have medical cards. And, and then when you take um, blood tests, and, you know, blood tests are kind of what you need to get if you think you've anything wrong with you, another eight euro. Yeah, and then there's then there's, like, if you have anything where you need to go see a specialist and you're doing it through... The HSE, it's a it's waiting still, list. Yeah, yeah, It's a waiting list. And then it's another waiting list for the and appointment then v- after that. And VHI, like most people in this country spend, you know, 
it's around two and a half grand, three grand a year for VHI for a family of say three or four. But that doesn't actually co- that only covers you if you're like cr- incredibly sick in hospital. It doesn't cover anything, say that you need to like go get tested or any of that kind of stuff. Anyway, we're going um a little bit off track there, um but that's all we have time for today. So thank you so much for listening. Um, I'm Kira O'Loughlin and I'm joined today by Aoife Horn. Uh, remember, you can always keep up to date with us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at DCU MPS News. We go live again at six o'clock on Monday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>